Welcome to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, and sometimes my cat Winston joins me. This podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to today's episode of True Crime Cat Lawyer. For today's episode, we're revisiting a case that we covered early on in the podcast. This will be our last re-record for a little while, and we have some really powerful episodes coming up in the next few weeks, so we hope you'll tune in for those. Until then, let's head back to 1967 to the town of Corvallis, home of Oregon State University. Dick Kitchell, better known as Dickie, was a 17-year-old high school senior. Dickie was an only child whose parents were divorced. His mom moved to Washington, so Dickie ended up living with his father most of the time. Dickie's father, Ralph, remarried several times, the most recent of which was in early 1967. Ralph owned a shoe store in downtown Corvallis. From everything I read, Dickie and his dad really didn't get along with each other. That's why Dickie often went to parties and got drunk, to escape his home life. Dickie was very sweet and very likable. He had friends from all social groups and was well-liked by his friends. On the night of October 11th, 1967, Dickie attended a party at the home of Paul and Judy Everts. Dickie was good friends with Judy's younger sister, Dawn. The Everts often bought alcohol for the teens in the neighborhood and threw parties at their house frequently. Dickie attended the party that night and he never came home. Dickie's dad and stepmom initially shrugged off Dickie's disappearance. They weren't worried until Dickie failed to show up for school. At that point, Ralph filed a report with police, who considered Dickie a runaway. You see, police had been called to and responded to the Kitchell home for multiple calls, various fistfights between Ralph and Dickie. Investigators didn't have a lot to go off. Dickie's dad and stepmom didn't know where he had been or who he was last with. Ten days later, on October 21st, two young teens were out fishing and found the body of Dickie Kitchell face down in the Willamette River. Both of Dickie's eyes were bruised, he had been hit in the nose, there was blood around his ears and mouth, he had a three-inch wide bruise on his throat, and his larynx was crushed causing him to suffocate. There was no water in Dickie's lungs or stomach, which told investigators that Dickie was dead before his body was dumped in the river. Dickie's body had been in the river for 10 days, so it was too contaminated to collect any forensics. Not to mention, this was 1967, so DNA wasn't a thing back then. When Ralph was brought to identify the body of his son, Dickie, he showed little emotion. According to Dickie's friends, he had three prized possessions, his Acme cowboy boots, his Pacific Trail tan suede jacket, and his baby blue 1955 Chevy. When Dickie's body was found, he was wearing the cowboy boots, jeans, and a gray Oregon State t-shirt, but his jacket was nowhere to be found. Police wanted to know where the tan suede jacket was and why it wasn't found with Dickie's body. 
Dickie's friends had a lot more information on Dickie's last night alive. Police interviewed one of Dickie's girlfriends, Judy Appleman. She was a grade lower than Dickie and was described as an all-American teenage girl. She was a cheerleader, a member of the rally dance committee and the fire squad, and she was on student council. Judy told police that she had a brief relationship with Dickie because she wasn't actually allowed to date, but Dickie was allowed to come over to her house. Judy last saw Dickie on October 11th, the day he went missing, in the parking lot behind the high school. This was the last time she saw Dickie and couldn't provide any other details to investigators. Detectives quickly turned their attention to Paul and Judy Everts, the couple who threw the party on the night Dickie was last seen. As I mentioned before, Dickie was friends with Judy's younger sister, Dawn, so he would often attend parties at the Everts' home. Paul told police Dickie was drunk when he arrived at the party, where more than a dozen teenagers and a few men in their 20s were at. Paul then told officers that Judy and Dickie got into some kind of disagreement, and Dickie told Judy to quote-unquote, get fucked. Of course, this altercation didn't sit well with Paul. Paul told detectives that he told Dickie to go back and apologize to Judy, which he claimed that Dickie did. However, other witnesses who were at the party that night told investigators that Dickie never came back into the house to apologize to Judy or for any other reason. From their interview with the Everts, police learned that Dickie had been given a ride home from another partygoer, Doug Hamblin. Hamblin was 23 years old, divorced, and had a two-year-old daughter. He had a troubled history. He lost sight in his right eye as a child due to a broken beer glass, and he was described as mean and abusive by more than one ex-wife. Hamlin told police that on the night of the party, he offered to drive some of the teens home around 12 a.m. There were two teenage boys named Marty and Mel and Dickie Kitchell. Hamlin took Marty home first because he had a midnight curfew. Mel was dropped off next. After that, Dickie moved to the front seat of Hamblin's car, but he refused to tell Hamblin where he lived. Dickie told Hamblin to just keep driving because he didn't want to go home. Hamblin eventually pulled his car over near the state employment office. This is when he told police that he pulled Dickie out of the driver's side of the car because the passenger door was broken in order to make Dickie get out of his car. Hamblin told investigators that he saw Dickie walking south from the employment office. Hamblin then returned to the Everts' house around 1.30 a.m. As police interviewed Hamblin, they took note of his demeanor and his appearance. Hamblin didn't have any visible bruises or scratches on his fists, and he agreed to take a polygraph test. One thing Hamblin offered up without being asked by police, was that he found a coat in his car on October 12th, and because of the size, he gave it to a nine-year-old neighbor. He offered to get the coat back from the neighbor and bring it to police, which struck police as sort of odd, because while they were looking for the jacket, they didn't understand why Hamblin would have just given it away so quickly, rather than trying to track down the potential owner, who was likely Mel, Marty, or Dickie. Investigators also decided not to question Hamblin as to why he returned to the Everts' house after he dropped all the teenage boys off. Based on the story they had from Hamblin, police believed Dickie was likely killed on the night of the 11th and then immediately dumped into the river. Detectives canvassed the Kitchell neighborhood as well as the area near where Hamblin said he dropped Dickie off. No one heard anything out of the ordinary near Dickie's house, and there were no witnesses or any physical evidence in either location. 
There were no reported sightings of Dickey after Hamblin forced him out of his car. On October 22nd, investigators interviewed Marty Tucker. Tucker told police that there was a scuffle on the night of the party between Paul and Dickey, but, quote, no blows were exchanged, end quote. Tucker also told police that Dickey didn't apologize and he never went back inside the Everts' house. When police spoke with Mel Plemons, the other teen in Hamblin's car that night, he also told them that Dickey and Paul had issues, specifically that Dickey was mad at Paul prior to the night of the party on October 11th. Other witnesses at the party confirmed that some kind of altercation took place between Dickey and Paul. Dickey's funeral was held on October 24th, 1967. Six of his closest friends were pallbearers. Dickey was laid to rest in the Twin Oaks Memorial Cemetery in Albany, Oregon. Police continued to be baffled at the response, or lack thereof, by Ralph, Dickey's dad, when it came to Dickey's murder. Many people in the Corvallis area felt that Ralph wasn't upset or sad about his son's murder. Police saw no signs of grief, and Ralph never asked police for any status updates on the case. Ralph also declined to have Dickey's clothes and boots returned to him. It soon became a commonly held assumption that Ralph had something to do with Dickey's murder. Regardless of Ralph's lack of interest in the case, police continued their investigation. They interviewed Diana Eddins, who spent Labor Day weekend with Dickey. This weekend was their second date, and Dickey was arrested for driving drunk and crashing his car into a row of mailboxes, some trees, and a fence after swerving to the wrong side of the road. Eddins and Dickey were both taken to the police station. Eddins remained friends with Dickey after the arrest, but he was no longer allowed to call her. Police also interviewed a classmate of Dickey's named Terry Guerin. Guerin told police that parties at the Everett's were quote-unquote word-of-mouth events. He described Dickey as a drunk, feisty little guy and said that the party was crowded that night. Garen also remembered Dickey swearing at everyone, probably because he was drunk, but also because Dickey was known to like to fight. Investigators centered their focus around Paul and Judy Everts, Doug Hamblin, and Dickey's father, Ralph. Paul Everts and Hamblin were giving polygraphs, along with Marty Tucker. The polygraph examiner recorded that Tucker was a quote-unquote nervous young man who became somewhat agitated when discussing the events of October 11th. Ultimately, the examiner concluded that Tucker's stress and vagueness during the exam was due to his age and not wanting to admit that he'd been drinking while he was underage. When it came time for Paul's polygraph, he told the examiner that he was really nervous. He said he saw Dickey and Hamblin get into a fight on the front porch, but didn't know what it was about. Paul claimed that he couldn't remember whether or not Dickey had come back inside his house after the altercation with Hamblin. The polygraph examiner's notes indicated that Paul was quite friendly, intelligent, and seemingly candid. The examiner felt that Paul was truthful when it came to answering the specific questions about dumping Dickey's body in the river and whether he had hit Dickey in the face. Paul had answered no to both questions. The polygraph examiner's notes indicated that Hamblin's results were inconclusive. Police would definitely be paying him another visit in the near future. Ralph Kitchell was interviewed by police on a few different occasions throughout their investigation. Ralph last saw Dickey on October 11th, but he didn't report his son as a missing person until October 16th. Again, this struck police as odd. Nearly an entire week went by before Ralph seemed to notice that his son was nowhere to be found. 
Ralph claimed that he wasn't worried about Dickie until he failed to show up for school. Apparently, Dickie often went to the beach with his friends since it's only about an hour or so away from Corvallis. And Dickie spent a lot of time away from home. So evidently, it wasn't unusual for Ralph not to see his son for longish periods of time. The Corvallis police station was about a block away from Ralph's shoe store, so detectives would make frequent pop-ins. One detective told author Rebecca Morris, quote, Ralph didn't like the police. He was upset with them for not solving Dickie's murder right away and not ruling him out, but he wasn't sad. Police didn't know what to make of Ralph and couldn't rule him out as a suspect, end quote. Not only was Ralph not displaying any real sadness or any emotion about Dickie's murder, police have been told that Ralph had a temper and a reputation as a bully and a drunk. There was a long history of police calls to the Kitchell home related to fights between Ralph and Dickie. Dickie was Ralph's only child. Ralph married Dickie's mother, Joan, in 1950 when Joan was four months pregnant with Dickie. After the two divorced, Joan moved back to Washington. Ralph then married his second wife, Irene, before divorcing her. He was on his third wife, Sylvia, in spring of 1967. Instead of taking the suspicion off of himself, Ralph and his wife, Sylvia, hired an attorney. Ralph and Sylvia told police that their attorney advised the couple against taking polygraphs. But when detectives contacted their attorney, he okayed them to take polygraphs as long as he was given a copy of the results. Ralph was pissed when he found out this information and he told police, quote, okay, I'll take that damn test for once and for all and get you off my back. I'm tired of being accused of this crime and after the test, maybe you'll start looking in the right direction and leave us alone because we didn't have anything to do with Dickie's death, end quote. It was quickly becoming clear to investigators that solving Dickie's murder depended on their ability to answer one question. Did Dickie make it home the night of October 11th or not? Hamlin agreed to take a second polygraph exam. He brought Dickie's jacket to the station with him. Detectives taped the interview where Hamlin admitted he may have wrapped his arm around Dickie's neck, causing the bruise to Dickie's throat while he was trying to get him out of his car. But Hamlin swore that Dickie was alive when he drove off. Again, some of Hamlin's responses appeared deceptive. The polygraph examiner's report notes Hamblin wasn't, quote, deceptive in relation to the statements made regarding his knowledge of the death of Dickey. However, it also appears that Hamblin wasn't completely truthful in regard to some of his answers given on the control questions, end quote. Unfortunately for investigators, polygraph results are inadmissible in court and there was no actual evidence to justify arresting Hamblin. Although, in addition to the inconclusive slash deceptive polygraph results, Hamblin also left Corvallis shortly after Dickey's murder to visit his father in Port Angeles, Washington. But Hamblin did eventually come back to Corvallis. Detectives interviewed a few more witnesses who either interacted with or saw Dickey on October 11th. Bob Wadlow drove Dickey to the Everett's house and planned to pick him up later that evening. So why didn't he pick Dickey up? Bob told police that he came back to the Everts between 10.30 and 11 p.m. and was told that Dickie was having a good time and would get a ride from someone later that night. Police also spoke with Pat Hockett, the Everts babysitter. She lived with the couple and took care of their daughter when they went to work. Hockett also had a second job at Seton's, a local restaurant. 
Hockett told police that she was at the Everts' home at the beginning of the party on October 11th, but then she left for a shift at Seton's from 11 p.m. to 1.30 a.m. When she got home from work, the Everts and Doug Hamblin were alone in the house talking. She didn't remember seeing Dickie at the party, but she told police two important tidbits. Dickie never took off his coat except to fight, and Doug Hamblin had a violent temper. Police had one more person they wanted to interview. Dickie's stepbrother, Roger Bix, not his real name. According to author Rebecca Morris, Bix had a checkered past and a violent temper. Bix had been expelled from school for non-attendance, and when investigators ran a background check on him, they found out that he had a record in Cottage Grove for shoplifting, disturbing the peace, drunkenness, minor in possession, and pushing a reserve deputy around. When Bix was interviewed by police, he told them that there were frequent arguments between him and Dickie, but he was hunting on October 11th and didn't return home until around 1 a.m. Police found no evidence that Bix was in Corvallis or at the Everts party. Bix took a polygraph and the examiner's notes stated that there were no indications of deception. Investigators felt pretty confident that they could rule Bix out as a suspect. In March 1968, Doug Hamblin took his third polygraph test. Once again, the examiner felt that Hamblin was deceptive and withholding information. This examiner added one more tidbit that other examiners hadn't previously noted. This examiner said that Hamblin was quote-unquote probably responsible for Dickey's death. But again, there was still no physical evidence that linked Hamblin to Dickey's murder. Unfortunately, that's where the case stayed for many long years. Eventually, cold case detectives were assigned to review Dickey's case. Sadly, all of the evidence was poorly preserved. The original police report had never been filed, interview tapes were missing and others weren't transcribed, photos from the crime scene weren't developed, and the film was missing. Cold case detectives also learned that Dickie's clothes were missing and there were several loose ends that police never looked into back in 1968. Thankfully, detectives did have all of the polygraph results as well as the prior detectives' written notes. In 2008, investigators met with John Lee, again, not his real name. Lee contacted police in the 1970s with a possible tip. He lived across the street from Hamblin's first wife. She told Lee on more than one occasion that Hamblin confessed to killing Dickie. Although detectives were able to speak with Lee, they couldn't verify any of his story because Hamblin's ex-wife had died in 1990. In 2011, detectives learned that Hamblin had died of a heart attack at his Corvallis home in November 2008. He was 64 years old. At that point, cold case detectives closed their investigation. They stated the investigation was closed because the district attorney declined to prosecute based on the death of the presumed offender, a.k.a. Doug Hamblin. Investigators told the police that no further investigative efforts would be spent on the case. But questions still remain. Did Hamblin really kill Dickie? And if so, was it Hamblin's intention to murder Dickie or was it an accident? There was no evidence and no crime scene. Detectives never found out where Dickie was killed. There was no blood on the street near the employment office or near the river. No weapon was found, there was no confession, and no evidence was found back in 1967 when investigators searched Hamblin's car. Although, he did have a few days to clean out the car by the time police interviewed him. 
Investigators appear to feel confident that Doug Hamblin was either involved with Dickie's murder or actually was Dickie's killer. Unfortunately, we'll never know for sure due to Hamblin's death and the lack of evidence. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages are included in the show notes. And if you want more content, head over to Patreon to join one of our available tiers. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.